We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What up, listener? We wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this Blue Wire podcast. Be sure to show your support to this pod by subscribing and dropping a five-star review on iTunes, a follow on Spotify, or the appropriate dap for any other platform you might be listening on. And if you're enjoying this show, chances are you'll like one of our 75 other sports podcasts. Find more shows you'll love at BlueWirePods.com. Thanks again for listening, and now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Blue Wire. Hold on a minute. Don't you think we ought to talk? What, about how I'm going to run? Sure. About how you've managed to live as long as you have. Think he can drive? Oh, he can drive. He can drive beyond the limits of the tires, the engine, the car, anything else. It's nothing I can't do with a race car. Well, that's the difference between you and me. There's only so much I can do. You want me to work the pit and you drive? You run good? Thank you. And we'll see how you do in the crowd. Think your driving can improve? I'll take your word for what a car can do, but I'm not taking anybody's word for what I can do. Welcome back to Big Screen Sports, the sports movie podcast brought to you by Blue Wire. I am your host, Kyle Banduho. Uh, If you're listening to this the day it drops, it's a Thursday, and you know, if you've been listening for a while, you know that we normally drop podcasts on Mondays. I wanted to push this one back. Um, It it did not feel right to drop something the day after uh, the passing of Kobe Bryant. It just, you know, this isn't a, a timely sports podcast, but um, I guess this week, Words and Sports Media. And it's just kind of a loss that's impacted everyone, Um, you know, just really encompassed the entire sports media landscape. So it just felt insensitive to be at a point where I, you know, to to spend Monday saying, hey, hey, listen to me. Um, So I wanted to push this one back. It was a, you know, a really fun episode. And I I just didn't want to take away from anything that, um, you know, that that was unfortunately going on, Uh, you know, thoughts to... uh, Thoughts all the families impacted. It just um, it was probably the one of the sadder days in 
saddest days in, in sports that I can remember. But, um, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully everyone enjoys this episode and kind of takes away from, from the harsh reality of things for, for a little bit. So, um, you know, let's kind of get to it. It's the last episode of January, and this is an exciting one for me for a few reasons. Started this podcast nearly a year ago now, and the original Genesis was celebrating everything fun and realistic about sports movies, the things we love, and also poking fun at aspects that are just, you know, a bit too much, little too unrealistic. This episode is really the perfect example of that, and it's all thanks to my guest. I've been a big fan of Ryan McGee's work for a long time over at ESPN, and he was the perfect guest for Days of Thunder. He's covered both the sport as a member of the media and simply been a lifelong fan, uh, without a doubt made up for my deficiencies in the knowledge of the sport. Days of Thunder is just so much fun to talk about because of what this movie represents and you know the time it was released. It's basically Top Gun with NASCAR, stars a bunch of relevant young and old actors, it's directed by Tony Scott, and it bases itself on a ton of NASCAR lore. So there's, there's a ton to pull from. And Ryan was super dialed into that. Uh, he drops a ton of tidbits that I couldn't even find on the IMDb trivia. Uh, it was just a really fun episode to record. And you'll hear later in the episode, we actually recorded it in two parts, pre- and post-national championship game. Uh, Ryan, the second half, is coming off a weekend in New Orleans, but he was dialed in. So I think you guys are going to really enjoy this episode. And it, you know, if you're enjoying Big Screen Sports, you haven't yet, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast leave a five-star rating, and if you so wish, a review. I read out all new reviews at time of recording. Let me know what you think, and as you know, you know those ratings are really important for helping this podcast grow. I appreciate every time you guys do that. If this is your first episode, go back and check, see if we've covered any of your favorites or your least favorites. Uh, got about 50-plus episodes now. They're all pretty evergreen, uh, you know. Go, so go check out the feed wherever you get your podcast. You can always follow at big underscore screen sport on Twitter, Instagram at Big Screen Sports Pod. Going to have upcoming episode info, uh, sports movie content. So, so give those a follow if you want to be in tune on what the podcast is going to be up to. Next week, we are starting off Oscars month. We're going to do, uh, in February, going to do sports movies that won or were nominated for Oscars. First episode, going to be talking Jerry Maguire with Julie DeCaro. But I think for now, it is time to get to a great episode talking Days of Thunder with Ryan McGee. All right, today I am joined by an ESPN senior writer and co-host of Marty and McGee, Ryan McGee. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm uh, I'm I'm about to start packing my bags to go to Daytona, so you're getting me in the uh, in the right mindset here. Yeah, it's uh, you know, this movie is the uh, I guess the premier NASCAR movie of the '80s, at least, or the 1990 when it came out. Uh, Close before enough, yeah. before we get talking Days of Thunder, uh, let the folks know where they can find Marty and McGee and anything else that you're writing. You wrote one of the most interesting things I read all last year: the story of OJ's two Heisman's. <laughs> uh, where can folks find more stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, it's at ESPN.com. I've been fortunate to have worked at ESPN most of my adult life, which is a long time now. And the uh, and yeah, Marty McGee. Uh, this time of year, uh, in the spring and the summer, we're on ESPN radio on Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern. And, uh, we always say we're the official radio show of like the soccer dads going to get the donuts. And so we'll be on Saturday mornings and on SEC network also. And then in the fall, uh, the, the TV version will, will come back. Uh, but yeah, but Saturday mornings, um, more than most Saturday mornings, Marty and I, uh, neither one of slept much from Friday night and Marty's usually still hung over. So it's usually pretty entertaining. Marty, like me is a, a Virginia tech fan, I believe. Yep. Yep. Correct? He grew up, yep. grew up right there in the shadow of, uh, in the shadow of the stadium. 
Well, go Hokies. Uh, but we are not here to talk the Hokies. We're here to talk <laughs> Days of Thunder. Days yeah. of Thunder is the 1990 uh, sports NASCAR action movie. A young hotshot stock car driver gets his chance to compete at the top level. Directed by the late Tony Scott. Produced by Top Gun producers Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson. Starred Tom Cruise, Robert Duvall, Nicole Kidman, and a sane Randy Quaid. Score was done by <laughs> Hans Zimmer. Got a 39% on Rotten Tomatoes. Grossed nearly $158 million worldwide. It is uh, essentially Top Gun, but NASCAR. Yeah, and, and no, that's exactly what it was. And the, the story goes that that was the pitch, which, you know, you're talking about, you know, the late 80s, uh, Tom Cruise could just walk into Paramount and say, this is what I want to do, and they would have just said yes. And so, you know, Tony Scott, who had directed uh, Top Gun and, and most of the writing team, I mean, they all, they this was their pitch. It was uh, Top Gun with race cars. And uh, and the the studio never hesitated for one second. Yeah, and for you know for for good reason. It's t- it's peak Tom Cruise. Really, it's it's the movie oh, isn't yeah. as much like a self serious NASCAR movie as it is just like Tom Cruise charisma and NASCAR porn. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's even. I mean it's Top Gun all the way to the point of. I remember I went with my brother, and we're sitting in the theater, and I'd seen Top Gun fifty times, and and it was funny because uh, there's that scene in the transporter where, you know, Tom Cruise goes into the hole. Well, my dad owned my race car and then he, uh, went to jail and I was without a ride. And my brother leaned over. He goes, he's got dad issues just like Maverick. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it is, it is very much the same movie and there's an injury and uh, a psychological barrier that has to be broken to get back. And, um, just like Top Gun and, um, there's you know, a doctor. Lo- yeah, there's a doctor. And Nicole Kidman's first American film, by the way. And you mentioned Hans Zimmer. That's the thing is, I talked to Tom Cruise about this film for almost four minutes one day when he was at the racetrack. He still comes to the racetrack when they're out in, when, when NASCAR's out in California. And I does he really? For, yeah, he does. He he's still very good friends with Jeff Gordon. When when Jeff Gordon retired, um, and, and people have said this movie is about Jeff Gordon. It's not. This, this 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 film predated Jeff Gordon, but it's about Jeff Gordon's team. It's about Hendrick Motorsports. And so, when NASCAR goes to Fontana, California, to the California Speedway, if you really pay attention, Tom Cruise usually shows up, and it doesn't make a big deal out of it. And usually, is sitting in, uh, you know, it, back back in the day, Jeff Gordon's pit stall, but he's hanging out with Rick Hendrick. But he showed up. He surprised Jeff Gordon, and showed up at the. Uh, at Jeff Gordon's last NASCAR awards banquet when Jeff was retiring and uh, Jeff broke down crying. So they're really good friends and they're also the same height. So it works out great. <laughs> I didn't realize uh, Jeff Gordon was that short of stature. It's interesting that Cruz has, has kept kind of the passion for it, or at least at least kept involved. Uh, if you look at the writing on this movie, you know, especially at the time, there was definitely some pushback from from just the NASCAR industry. And you've been both a fan of NASCAR and a member of the media, cover the sports. You've got you know two perspectives on that. But before we get into that, uh, Ryan, in, in your words, what makes a good sports movie? Well, I just want, with any movie, I just want to feel something. And, you know, I, I either want to be moved emotionally or uh, I will just want to have a good time and see something I've never seen before. And when Days of Thunder came along, it, the, the style that they used to shoot these race cars, to film these race cars, no one had ever done that before. And that's what the, the, the one four-minute conversation I had with Tom Cruise, he said that to me. He goes, the thing about this movie is, and he's well aware of the fact that the NASCAR community has always been very divided about that film. They either say, hey, it's fun, or they hate it. I mean, just hate it. 
And Tom Cruise has always been very sensitive to that. But he said to me, he goes, you watch every car commercial that was on television before Days of Thunder. And you watch every car commercial and, and movie with auto racing or television show with auto racing and after Days of Thunder. And it changed the way that it's shot. And, and that's ultimately, I think, is the legacy. And that goes, you know, hilariously enough, that, that, that goes more than anything for the people in the NASCAR industry shooting these commercials and promoting racetracks and whatever else. It all looks like Days of Thunder. And before that, it was just a camera on top of a press box, you know, showing cars going around. And no matter what you think about this movie, you can't say that the, the action, the actual on-track action is just really exciting. It's yeah. awesome. And it's, it's, it's sufficiently over the top. You know, it, that, it, that's exactly how uh, a movie like that should be, just like Top Gun. You, you talk to fighter pilots, and uh, they make a choice. They either choose to watch Top Gun like they're watching film of an actual dogfight, and it makes them mad, or they choose to just, or, or like doctors who watch, you know, Grey's Anatomy. You know, th- th- that's not exactly how it goes down in the emergency room. But, but those who enjoy it are willing to kind of check that at the door. And some NASCAR people are able to do that with Days of Thunder, and some have never been able to. So with that being said, for you, is it a Hall of Fame, All-Star, Starter, or Benchwarmer sports movie? And where does it kind of rank among NASCAR movies for you? Well, for me, it's a, it's a Hall of Famer just because, I mean, for me personally, um, that film came out when I was, um, not quite out of high school and what am I going to do for a living? And I was a Rockingham, North Carolina kid and was a NASCAR fan, but it made it cool. And it made my, my stick and ball sport friends, the basketball, football, you know, baseball fans, those guys, they went and saw the film. My best friend from high school, uh, is still a high school basketball coach. And, uh, he could have cared less, made fun of NASCAR, and then after that, it was kind of cool. And as much as NASCAR people like to run down the accuracy of Days of Thunder, the reality is is that it moved the needle in a way that nothing had in a really long time. Because you look at the growth curve of NASCAR, it took off right after Days of Thunder. And I'm not saying it's because of the film, but I'm saying that the film was a big contributor to that. So for me, I mean, it's top ten. I can. It's one of those, if you hit play right now, um, in your house, wherever you are and wherever I am, and just say go, I could sit there and recite every line, almost in cadence with the film, because I've watched it that many times. Because, you know, it's not a documentary. It's a good time. So, and as far as NASCAR films go, it ranks at the top simply because, uh, I mean, it's a compliment to the film, but it's also, unfortunately, a statement on the state of, of NASCAR films. They're all terrible. And um, there's not many. No, there's not many. And, and you know, Tom Higgins, who was the original NASCAR beat writer uh, for the Charlotte Observer in the 1960s, um, he always would tell me the stories in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. He would, and and uh, Higgins would tell me the story about the big Days of Thunder premiere in Charlotte. And there's that incredible opening sequence at Daytona that's just phenomenal. And then the very next shot cuts to, you know, Harry Hogg's, uh, barn and it's the, and, and it says Charlotte, North Carolina <laughs> is the, is the graphic that goes up and the entire theater let out a groan because all the people in the NASCAR industry were hoping they would be portrayed as these, these cutting edge engineers and, you know, cool people. And the first shot of Charlotte was actually of a, of a barn, um, about an hour North of Charlotte, you know, in the Appalachian foothills. And so the reaction wasn't strong, but then Higgins always told me about, the premiere of Redline 7000, 
like in the early 60s. And that was a terrible uh, stock car racing movie. George Takei was in it, Sulu. And, oh, God. Um, and it premiered, at the, it premiered at the Carolina Theater in downtown Charlotte. And Curtis Turner, uh, who's a NASCAR Hall of Fame driver and was one of the all-time Hellraisers, uh, at some point in the middle of the movie, Curtis Turner stood up in the theater and said, This is terrible. Tiny, let's get out of here. And he's talking to Tiny Lund, another NASCAR Hall of Fame driver, and they got up and left in the middle of the theater. And then everybody else started leaving. And so that was very typical of what NASCAR films were. It was Thunder in Carolina starring the skipper from uh, from uh, Gilligan's Island. And it was uh, Speedway with Elvis, which was shot at Shaw Motor Speedway. Or it was you know 43, the Richard Petty story, which starred Richard Petty. And it was awful. And his father was portrayed by the dad from A Christmas Story. That's all you had until Days of Thunder came along when it came to NASCAR film. So the good news is Days of Thunder is good. I like it. The bad news is it's, it's at the top of the list simply because the, the list is awful. The only other two that I have is movies that I would even rewatch. I love Talladega Nights. Oh, yeah. Um, and then uh, Three, the, the yep. Dale Earnhardt. That was an ESPN production, if I'm not mistaken. It was. And there, it's funny because there, so there, there were two films that came out almost simultaneously. Um, and one was three, uh, which starred Barry Pepper. Um, you know, I love Barry Pepper. Yeah, he's great. And, and, and he did a great job. And, and of course, um, the, uh, uh, <laughs> the, the guy that's in every commercial break during every NASCAR film now, uh, as the voice of farmer's insurance, uh, he played uh, Ralph Earnhardt, Dale's dad. And, uh, of course, the Oscar winner, you know, who knew? Jonah Jameson, you know, from the Spider-Man J.K. Simmons. Right, J- I yeah. love him. And, and it was cool because – but I was working at NASCAR Media Group, NASCAR Productions, and we released a film at almost the exact same time. I was, this is the only time in my career when I was not at ESPN. We did a documentary called Dale, and I actually wrote the script for that, and, um, and Paul Newman narrated it. And so there was kind of this race, the, the Earnhardt family – and Richard Childress wanted to get this Dale documentary out as close to that three film as possible because the three film was made without any cooperation from the family. In fact, Teresa Earnhardt tried to do everything she could to block it. And uh, but no, it was a good movie. And and uh, I mean certainly in the NASCAR pantheon. And, and listen, Talladega Nights, like Days of Thunder, still remains very divisive in the garage. People either I was at, I was at the premiere for Talladega Nights in Charlotte. And um, I remember Mike Helton was there. He's president of NASCAR, and no one would laugh during the film because they were waiting to see if Mike Helton was going to laugh. The, the theater was full of NASCAR people. And so uh, some people think that movie's hilarious in the garage, and some people are embarrassed by it and try to distance themselves from it. But uh, my reaction to that is the same as it is the Days of Thunder, which is y'all are taking yourselves entirely too seriously. Yeah, well, I'm not a NASCAR savant, so I definitely laugh during Talladega Nights. Of course. No, it's, my it's my wife and I were just dying laughing. The whole... Uh, the, the dinner and praying to baby Jesus and all that stuff. My wife and I were laughing so hard we were crying. We were the only people in the theater laughing because no one would laugh because the president of NASCAR wouldn't laugh. And then at the, I tell you, when he cracked up was when Carly, the wife, says, "You know, Ricky Bobby's out of work," and she goes, I, "You know, I don't work. You know, I'm a, I'm a driver's wife." And that was the line that finally got everyone, all, all the all the stiff NASCAR shirts to, to finally break down. And that one's got uh, one, one of the, the co-stars of this movie, John C. Riley, in it. Yeah. Um, with this with this movie, it may not have been a super self-serious NASCAR movie, but they did, they based a lot of this movie either off real events, character scenes, just kind of racing lore. I like the idea that it's like they just 
they just took, hey, these are things that we've heard about drivers, about legends, everything like that, and we're just going to just pump them up, put them in the movie, um, which I thought was pretty cool. There's a lot of that in the the IMDb trivia, um, which we'll get to in a second. I tried to just kind of, if you look at the IMDb trivia, it's just, it's numerous. Um, but I've got two questions for you. One of them, you mentioned, you know, you're a Southern guy, you're a North Carolina guy, NASCAR is rooted in the South. What do you think about this movie not having a Southern star or not having Cruz throw on a Southern accent and be like a, a guy from North Carolina? Well, so it didn't bother me because I knew what the story was based on. And the story of, of Cole Trickle is based on a, a racer called, named Tim Richmond. And Tim Richmond is unfortunately known by most as the driver who died of AIDS. Um, but, but Tim Richmond was an Ohio guy that had roots in uh, open wheel racing. He had raced at the Indianapolis 500. He had raced in the world of outlaws and in sprint cars, which is what Cole Trickle talks about. You know, there's that scene where the first time he tests uh, Rowdy Burns' car at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. And the one guy goes, no, where's he from? He's from Eagle Rock. Well, that's up near Wilkesboro, right? No, it's out in California. California, he's a Yankee. Like that's the whole conversation that took place. And it was kind of like that. It was a lot like that when Tim Richmond uh, crashed into NASCAR in, in the early to mid eighties and started beating Dale Earnhardt, you know, and, and started beating Bill Elliott, started beating all these guys and wouldn't back down from him. And he sounded like he was from Ohio. And at the time, um, you know, in the eighties, almost all of the drivers were from North Carolina, not just the South, but, you know, Del Earnhardt was from Kannapolis and, you know, the Richard Petty was from Randleman. And, you know, you had that second generation coming up and Bill Elliott was from Dawsonville, Georgia. And all these guys were from the Southeast. And, uh, and then you had Rusty Wallace who had come from St. Louis. And that was as far North or West as really anyone came and had any success. And so, and Rusty Wallace, who's in Days of Thunder. And so it didn't bother me because it was based on a, a real race car driver who did not come from the Southeast. Now, the guys who did play Southern were amazing. I mean, Robert Duvall turned down Godfather 3, which I think we can all agree was a good move. Yeah, I think yeah. I would. I, I yeah. like this movie much more than oh, Godfather yeah. 3. And, and, but but he, I think he could see it coming, but he turned down. But, but he, Harry Hogg, and, and again, based on a real character, based on a guy, Harry Hyde, who was a NASCAR Hall of Fame crew chief and was Rick Hendrick's right-hand man when he started Hendrick Motorsports. But his Southern accent was so incredible. And, you know, and that's kind of what Robert Duvall has done in the last half of his career, is kind of played, you know, it's Lonesome Dove, and it's, you know, it, it, that, those are the characters that he plays. But he reminded me so much of my grandfather. He looked like him. He sounded like him. I mean, my brother and I were just like, we can't believe this. I and mean, it was amazing. And so the ones who played, then, of course, Rowdy Burns, uh, I mean, the, the, the ones who were really Southern, they were really Southern, and there, there was enough of that in there. And so the idea being that this, you know, quote-unquote Yankee was kind of crashing the party was uh, is pretty true. Okay, that's, that's good to hear. Uh, I was curious about your opinion of it. Before we get into the IMDb trivia stuff, I have one more question for you. Uh, and would Cole have caught a lifetime ban after crashing some sort of ban? Cole crashes into Russ after he wins the race. Like, right. I mean, it's deliberate, it's blatant, he's trying to hurt the guy. And he's he's racing in the Daytona 500 like a couple months later. No, it's based on a true story. Amazing. So, so that was based on a true story. And in fact, uh, one of the greatest races ever run almost had the only the, the, so the 1995. There's the Bristol Motor Speedway, which is in the which is in the film. But in the film, the Bristol Motor Speedway still you know 
it sat about 25,000 people. It seats 200,000 now. They, they call it the last great Coliseum. And one of the great races in the history of NASCAR was just a few years after this film. It was in 1995. And uh, Dale Earnhardt, uh, who Rowdy Burns was based on in the film, Dale Earnhardt wrecked Terry Labonte, uh, a Texan. And Terry Labonte was just kind of this quiet guy. And he wrecked him to win the race. And then Terry Labonte just sat there. And waited on Dale to come back around, and he tried to put the car in gear, but it was wrecked, and it wouldn't get in gear. But I've seen guys do this before. But so the so the I want you to hit the pace car. That's a true story. Uh, we're eating ice cream. That's a true story. Uh, th- those were all stories that had been told by Rick Hendrick to Tom Cruise and to the writers of the film, and um, and and those guys worked those stories in there. So yeah, it they didn't bother me because, uh, but it absolutely happened. And the driver who did it in real life, I believe it was Buddy Baker. Uh, not only is he in the NASCAR Hall of Fame, he uh, uh, or should be in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. I think he raced the next week too. And that's what you can see in a lot of the IMDb trivia is that so much of this is just based on lore and stories like that. And I think that's really cool how they incorporate it in the film. Um, as far as I want to read off some of the IMDb trivia. All the stuff, you know, there was tons of offset turbulence, mainly from like the producers, those in charge, yeah. tried to steer mostly towards the stuff that really shows on screen. And I mean, and, and, you know, anyone listening can check it out for themselves. There's so much that they line up, you know, this part of the movie or this character was based on this, you know, like you, you mentioned it, him, you know, Cole being based on Tim Richmond. You know, they, they mention, uh, you know, the, the driver that, that drove for Harry that's kind of haunting him, Buddy Brotherton, it says based on a NASCAR driver named Bobby Isaac, uh, who claimed to have heard voices telling him to get out of the race car, he would die, uh, pulled off the car off the track and quit, and then he died several years later from a heart attack while driving in a 1977 late model sportsman race at Hickory Motor Speedway with 25 laps left. Um, so, you know, it's another thing that it's based off, uh, some of the footage from the movie was shot during the 1990 Daytona 500, um, NASCAR driver, Greg Sachs did most of Cruz's stunt driving. Cruz wanted to do his own stunt driving, but wasn't allowed to for insurance <laughs> reasons, yeah. which like now is something we know about Tom Cruise is that he just lives to do his own stunts. He is totally willing to die, uh, for the sake of our entertainment. If, if the mission impossible series has proven nothing, it's proven that. That picture of him strapped on the plane in Mission yeah. Impossible when it's oh, up yeah. in the air is just one of the craziest. Oh, like, yeah. Tom Cruise is a psycho. Um, the cars used by Cole Trickle, the, their car, uh, Cole Trickle, Rowdy Burns, Russ Wheeler's cars were provided by Hendrick Motorsports with racers Greg Sachs, Bobby Hamilton, and Hutch Strickland as the stand-in drivers. In order to provide authentic race footage involving the cars, these cars were actually raced on three, lo- three occasions. In late 89, Hamilton and Sachs raced in Phoenix. Bobby Hamilton officially qualified fifth and led a lap before his engine blew. In 1990, the cars were raced again at Daytona and Darlington. Uh, which which is kind of cool that that shows the the lengths they went to get that authentic race footage. Yeah, and and it, and that did not go over well with some guys. Dale Earnhardt was really angry about that. And if you you know Dale Earnhardt is not in the film, you know his car is, but he is not in the film. And and other guys, Rusty Wallace, Harry Gant, there were a lot of drivers who had one line in the film or made an appearance in the film. Richard Petty, there's a shot of him in there. Dale Earnhardt is not in the film at all, other than just his car coincidentally on the track because he was so angry that they would take not real race cars and that's his words and put them on the racetrack and then when bobby hamilton did what he did where he qualified top five and he led a lap i mean they were so angry but bobby hamilton uh, who unfortunately is no longer with us 
but that was the break that Bobby Hamilton needed. This guy was a short track racer out of, out of uh, Tennessee and had always been right on the cusp of getting a ride in the Winston Cup Series. And then based largely on what he did driving the, the, the movie cars, is what they call them, the film cars, uh, largely based on what he did uh, in those races driving that car, that's what that was the break that got Bobby Hamilton. Bobby Hamilton was driving Richard Petty's car. He won a couple races in that car. And so it was... Uh, it was, a, it was a pretty amazing story. And just, you know, those cars too, The the there's a couple of movie cars um, and also uh, Tom Cruise's helmet, his driver's suit, all of, that, all of that is still on display at Hendrick Motorsports. They have an unbelievable museum uh, just north of Charlotte, right by the Charlotte Motor Speedway. And yeah, you know, all due respect to the cars that Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson and Terry Labonte and those guys won races and championships. And uh, whenever I'm up there, I walk directly to that number 51 mellow yellow car mellow yellow is just the best throwback too um we can put a bow on the imdb trivia you mentioned richard petty uh he said in the movie the only thing they got right was the numbers on the side of the cars <laughs> so he wasn't he wasn't as crazy no. about that either no they just it, and it just was in that level of cooperation that you're talking about i mean actually putting cars in races uh for the sake of shooting this film um, you know, NASCAR at that point had always struggled to be a mainstream sport and, and they thought that this film would be what pushed them over the top. And they thought they just, you know, listen, at the end of the day, everybody just wants to look cool. And they just, uh, there were a lot of people in the garage who did not believe that, that film made them look cool. And Richard Petty in his defense was a little jaded about all that because again, I go back to, I think it was 70 or 71, the Richard Petty story starring Richard Petty. And I have it on DVD. Uh, but it's pirated because I'm pretty sure Richard Petty rounded up every copy of it and burned it in his backyard. <laughs> legend, legend stuff. Uh, speaking of Richard Petty, let's go into best scene. Uh, the the opening scene, the the Daytona 500, Richard Richard Petty gets spun out real early. Right. Uh, there's the the Coles intro. He's testing the car. Um, there's the early race montage with "Give Me Some Love" and playing. I think it was a requirement. It was by law every seventy or eighty <laughs> sports movie had to have a montage. That's right. Ne- needed it. That's uh, right. The the Darlington race when Cole wins his first race. It's the first time the movie gives you any kind of real anxiety about a race with yeah. the the slow the slow pit stop. You know, Harry lies about the tires. It's like he gives him the, the Mike secret stuff before Mike secret stuff. Yeah. I come into the pits, I'm in first place. I go out, I'm in third with two laps to go. All right, first of all, don't get excited. All right, you're in third place. That's a pretty respectful position. Now, what you do is this. When they slow down at it for turn four, you just keep your foot on the gas and drive right by them on the outside. Harry, you told me nobody goes to the outside on turn four. Well, now I'm telling you different. If you go to the outside, you can hold. He's going to end up in the wall. All right, Colt. Pace cars are about ready to duck on off. We don't have a whole lot of time to talk about this. Well, tell me how. It's because we got a real good set of matched tires on it. What? What? Those tires are matched perfect and staggered spectrum. You're going to get him killed. The pace cars are about ready to duck on off. If you go to the outside, you can hold it. All right, Harry, when it comes to the car, I take your word. Uh, Cole and Rowdy wheelchair racing their way out of the hospital, and then... Uh, that leads into them racing their rental cars on the beach and committing multiple felonies. Yeah. Uh, the race Patriot where, tri- car. Yeah. yeah, the race where trickle crashes into Wheeler post race. And then the Cole and Harry discussion about buddy, it's kind of the closest thing the movie gets to in, in terms of getting into something deep about the psyche of drivers. 
Um, and then the, the last scene, the Daytona 500, the score, the Zimmer score is just pounding the entire scene. Did I miss any of your favorites? No, I mean, there's, and again, I know the film entirely too well, so there's a lot of subtle things in there. But no, I mean, the, um, and, and you know, so, so they have the conversation, you know, riding down the road in the, in the team transporter, they call it a hauler in NASCAR. Um, and just, for, just so folks know, that's for real. Like the, like, well, you see the trailer with the race team, there's absolutely a lounge up front. That's their office on race weekends. And there are two race cars and enough parts to build a third one, you know, in this workshop on wheels. Now they do not just ride around in the lounge, uh, when they're going from racetrack to racetrack, you know, race car drivers get on airplanes and, you know, the crews usually do too. And so that was a little unusual, but it's one of the great scenes, uh, when, the uh the 51 hauler is pulled over and of course the crew has arranged for the um a woman who is clearly not a south carolina state trooper uh to perform a uh a pat down uh, a very aggressive pat down on cole trickle i'm told that's based on a true story as well but i could never get that one verified so uh you know at the time i think i was like 18 years old so that was the scene that stuck out to me the most just you know if i'm being 100 percent honest well, that don't exactly make it legal. You know what? Now, up against the wall. What, what, what is this? Up against the wall. <laughs> well, looks like we found something. What's that? Concealed weapon. Where? Right here. <laughs> Now, the only question is, will he actually use it? <laughs> <laughs> Which that then leads to poor Cole Trickle uh, thinking that, that his doctor is doing the same thing. Right. And yeah. having supremely awkward moment. Um, as far as all the races, I feel like are very good, very exciting. Um, you know, the, I actually think I like the, the race Cole's first win the most, the one in Darlington. Um, I I think I enjoy that scene. I feel the stakes the most, I think. Yeah. And, and what's cool too is, is that, you know, I think non NASCAR fans certainly know about Daytona. Uh, they probably know about the Brickyard 400 in Annapolis, but they might not know, that to the drivers themselves, Darlington, the Darlington Raceway is second only to Daytona uh, in, in prestige. If you win at Darlington, uh, it probably your your car was good and your crew was good, but you have to be a great race car driver to win at that place. I mean, it's just there, there's there's just something about it. It's like being a good 300 hitter. You know, you can either do that or you can't in baseball. And so, uh, I was excited at the time and still am that Darlington held a really special place in that film. And was very revered because that is exactly how the garage feels about it. But yeah, so Jerry Punch, Dr. Jerry Punch, is a longtime ESPN on-air announcer, worked on NASCAR forever, was very helpful to me early in my career when I first started at ESPN, working on RPM Tonight. It was a nightly motorsports show we used to do that I still say would not have existed had it not been for Days of Thunder because it, it put it on the radar of a lot of our bosses in Bristol, Connecticut. But Jerry Punch was a pit reporter for decades at ESPN. And Jerry's in the film. He's Jerry is the the TV personality in Victory Lane that is interviewing uh, Cole Trickle. And Cole looks at him and he says, 
well, yeah, Harry, I, I knew I could make that, that move in turn four work on the outside because, uh, you know, Harry got me those special tires. And Jerry looks at Harry Hogg, the crew chief, he goes, special tires, Harry, what's special about them? And, of course, it was a lie. And But one of the, one of the big no-nos in NASCAR is you don't mess with tires. You, you don't, you run a big engine, an, an engine bigger than is allowed, and you don't do any, you don't treat the tires because that, that could be a potential safety issue. And, uh, uh, that scene was hilarious because, um, uh, Jerry Punch, who was not an actor and who was a great friend of mine about him going, well, Harry, what, what's special about him? And to this day, uh, I always text Jerry Punch at some point during the year and ask him if he got his royalty check yet from Paramount. And every year he gets one. And, uh, and every year it gets smaller and smaller. When I first started working with Jerry in the late nineties, those royalty checks were pretty gigantic. And, uh, now I check in with him and, you know, it's five or six bucks, but, uh, but they're still coming in. Well, they need to get the movie on prime or Netflix or something to, to give it a, give it an extra boost. I did. I had to rent this one on prime for a, uh, for a rewatch. Well, if you come to my house, I think I have it on about nine different formats. So I I have a, I have an entire library of racing films. I think uh, I need to my, see it on VHS. Office. I need to get the original oh, yeah. experience. Yeah, you got to get, get the real. You got to make sure you got. If you're not uh, adjusting the tracking uh, knob on there, then you're not actually watching Days of Thunder. Love it, love it. Um, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors, and then we'll get back to most and least authentic. Hey guys, this is Brianna Rust at Breezy Clee. And this is Brittany Mollis at Bird's Eye View. If you're a sports fan, we invite you to check out our show on the Blue Wire Network. That's what B said, a Cleveland sports podcast. Each Wednesday, Bree and I will break down some of the hottest trending topics in the sports world with a special focus on Cleveland. We'll offer unique perspectives about our beloved Browns, Cavs, and Indians. We hope you join us on this wild ride. Okay, and we are back. And the the beauty with podcasting is we're we're back from a little longer break than usual. Uh, Ryan, we recorded the first half of this podcast about a week ago, uh, and since you have been in Louisiana, New Orleans for the the national championship game, uh, so real quick, tell the folks where they can find your piece about the insanity that is LSU fanhood. Yeah, I'm curious to listen to this because see if my voice sounds is different because I'm I'm operating on like one hour of sleep. My my assignment was uh, to basically sacrifice myself for the sake of journalism. I went down to Bourbon Street in the closing minutes of the national championship game to watch all the LSU fans. So yeah, as with everything else I write, it's on ESPN.com, and it was uh, I did, let's just say I was lucky to get out of there alive. I'm sure. I'm sure. I think we all saw the videos. I mean, this episode's dropping on on Monday, January 27th, so you might have to dig a little bit on ESPN.com, but uh, definitely worth a look. But it's time to get get back in gear for the insanity that is uh, Days of Thunder, and let's talk <laughs> the the most authentic and least authentic sports centric parts of this movie. Ryan, what did you have for you know as a as a NASCAR lifer? What did you have for the the most authentic part of this movie? Well, the big thing, and I think we discussed it a little bit already, was um, you know, the stories are real. Like, you know, the you can't pit right now because we're eating ice cream. That happened to Benny Parsons. And, and you know, th- th- those stories were real. And Rick Hendrick is the guy who, you know, obviously was sort of played by Dennis Quaid. He, he's the one that shared those stories, you know, with the filmmakers. And so, to me... That was part of it, and um, and and there was the uh, it, just the, the way that uh, the cars looked and the way the pit stalls were set up and all of those things. It just it was very authentic to the time, and I think that's part of why that movie has had legs. You know, as NASCAR fans have kind of become obsessed with nostalgia, 
uh, over the last decade in the good old days of the nineties and all that, um, that part of it to me is, uh, is the best part is, is the most authentic part. It's just the, the feel of it. See, and I didn't want to make a, it, it felt, I mean, it felt real to me, but I'm not a NASCAR lifer. I'm not a NASCAR savant. Didn't really know. I didn't want to really want to throw down something for, for most authentic. Uh, this isn't really sports centric. It's pretty authentic with, uh, Tom Cruise trying to pretend to be sexual with Nicole Kidman for you take that for what it's worth. They got married, uh, right after this movie, I believe. So yeah, uh, there was relevant. something there. Right. Yeah. No, the, uh, yeah. Who knows? Maybe the sweet and low drafting scene was what finally made them realize that they were, uh, they were destined for each other, at least for a little bit. That might've done it. What did you have for the least authentic thing? Well, I mean, there's, there's the stuff that, that NASCAR fans, have, but, but even more so people within the NASCAR community nitpick on like, uh, I can't remember where they've just raced in the film, but he's clearly at a hotel in Daytona. And this is of course the, you know, uh, you know, Cole, let me out of the car. Yeah. You know, that scene where he, where he's battling mm-hmm. with the taxi driver, yeah. that hotel is in Daytona. I can't remember where it was. They were supposed to, but, but, but the part that, 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 that hangs everybody up is they've just raced somewhere. And he says, he's got maybe Wilkesboro. He's got to catch his flight back to Charlotte, which no one, everybody, Wilkesboro is only maybe, maybe an hour North of Charlotte. And nobody's catching a flight to Wilkesboro or from Wilkesboro and never has and never will. And so, so just a little things like that. And like, you know, they, they, they throw up a shot of what's clearly like Phoenix. And I think they call it Rockingham, like with the, with the graphic. And they do that a couple times in the movie. Those are the things that drive, uh, NASCAR fans crazy. And it's like that with Talladega Nights. It's like that with, with really any racing movie, you know, Ford versus Ferrari, which obviously just got nominated for best picture. Um, that's the most, authentic racing film ever made and that's that's not even there, there's not even an argument there but there's still little things you know they're at daytona and i know that they're at the california speedway i can just tell looking at the shape of the track and so there's little things like that 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 will drive you crazy if you let them and then of course the scene i talked about i mean the opening scene really after that great montage that that starts the film and it cuts to uh that barn which is by, by, by the way still still sits there people show up and take pictures of it all the time north of charlotte but the the big graphic says charlotte north carolina and that uh that is not charlotte north carolina <laughs> so it's so it's a lot of nitpicky stuff that yeah that's the NASCAR it yeah, community yeah. crazy with this one yeah and you know and, and, and listen and, and obviously i mean you know the the you know pass him on the outside at darlington win a race and um you know he passes however many cars uh you know to win at daytona and he does it by constantly shifting, which no one ever does at Daytona, you know, unless they're just pitting and not pitting. But but it's just little things like that. If if you're a super hardcore fan, it's just like if you watch like the Babe Ruth story, that original film from whenever it was. And I can't remember the poor guy's name now, but you know, not only was he not left-handed, but it's the worst swing you've ever seen, and it didn't look anything like Babe Ruth's swing. But you know, it's just the little things like that that'll drive you crazy if you let it. Yeah, I, for, same thing for least realistic. I didn't really want to put something down. It's more of a question for you. It seems like this movie takes place over kind of the course of the year because he seems to to get on, get in with NASCAR after the Daytona 500 and the movie finishes at the Daytona 500. It just seems like a lot happens in a year. It says he wins five out of six races. Him and Russ Wheeler both come on the scene. That's two rookies. Is that out of the ordinary? Is that something that's, is there precedent for that? Well, it's, it's not out of the ordinary for rookies to, for multiple rookies to break in in a year. It's a little unusual for them to break in like 
in the middle of a season. And it's certainly unusual for them to break into the middle of a season and immediately start winning races. Now, it was that's super inaccurate uh, when it goes back to the 90s. You know, what's interesting is it changed right after that. You know, Jeff Gordon made his debut as a rookie the following year, or, or just like three years later after the film came out. And after Jeff Gordon came along, now it didn't seem impossible for a 20-something-year-old with California roots to show up and immediately start winning races. But but in 1990, uh, for Tom Cruise just to parachute in and immediately start winning races, that's not how it worked. Guys like Rusty Wallace, Dale Earnhardt, Daryl Waltrip, they all had to drive you know, for, for lower-level teams and drive junky cars, and they usually had to put in you know, pay their dues for several years before they got into a car that could actually win. So for Cole Trickle to just jump in and immediately start winning races felt crazy at the time. But Tim Richmond, the the, the, the real-life person that he was basically based on, sort of did that. It took him a couple years. But then just two years later, Jeff Gordon can change everything. And, uh, and yeah, so it, it wouldn't seem as unrealistic now uh, as it did then. It was the only thing that really jumped out to me and just yeah. something I had to ask about. Let's get into what worked. Um, obviously, like sports realism stuff that worked and just stuff that made this movie enjoyable. For What did you have down is stuff that just worked about this movie? Well, what what worked is the way it was shot. Um, you know, the way that film was shot was no one had ever done it like that before. And, you know, if you watch Speedway with Elvis or whatever, you know, what makes, you know, the, before – probably Ford versus Ferrari, the greatest racing movie ever made was the first 15 minutes of Grand Prix. Grand Prix is not really that great of a film, but the first 15, 20 minutes are incredible. And the reason is because it was the first time anyone took a camera and strapped it to a race car. And, you know, and it just, it felt real and scary. And that's why that film received Oscar nominations for sound and special effects and all that. Well, Days of Thunder um, it took that to another level and it wasn't just shooting the cars from the top of the press box, like in an old Elvis movie, this was, you know, building camera cars and, and putting cameras in those cars and putting them on the noses of cars and the bumpers of cars. And it changed the way that ESPN televised races, you know, ESPN and CBS had fiddled around with onboard cameras for a long time, but after days of thunder, they got way more aggressive with, with how they actually televised races. But, you know, I, I think I said it earlier, the one time I talked to Tom Cruise about the film, he said the, the, the legacy of the film is no car commercial and no auto racing film and no television show with a racing scene in it. None of that was the same uh, after Days of Thunder. And one of the guys that was, there was a stunt driver named Alan Paddleford. And uh, he got his first big break. He was a stunt driver. Um, who you know, helped them set up the cars for Days of Thunder, and he started having suggestions for where to put the cameras. Well, you should just put a camera in here with me. You should put a camera on the roof, put a camera. And he is, uh, and this shouldn't surprise anyone, he's the guy that was primarily responsible for building the race cars and putting cameras in them for Ford versus Ferrari. So that's kind of all you need to know, is that the Best Picture nominee now, uh, they brought on board the guy who was a youngster who really got his break uh, on Days of Thunder, you know, decades earlier. See, and that makes a lot of sense because I was born right after this movie came out and I've never seen race coverage or anything or car commercials, like right. Cruz was saying, that does not look like this in a yeah. way. So, so it so, was very familiar to me. Yeah, and some of these, so earlier when I saw these terrible films, you know, you know most race racing films were awful. And, and part of the reason was that you never got a sense of what it was like to be in the race cars. And if you go back and watch, 
you know, on ESPN Plus, you know, on the app, you can go look at all the old Indy 500 uh, covers that we did at ABC and ESPN all those years. Well, back, you know, Jim McKay and those guys in the 60s and 70s, and even in the 80s, you know, it's awesome. And the cars look great. But, you know, it wasn't until, you know, I think it was CBS first pioneered onboard cameras. I think it was with Kel Yarbrough at the Daytona 500 in the early 80s. And then when the technology really took off in the 90s, right after Days of Thunder, and now when you watch a race on Fox or NBC or, or, or if you're watching any car race or Formula One or whatever, it, you know, you can watch exclusively online just onboard cameras. And all that's based on, you know, what Days of Thunder did. And those guys took what they learned from Grand Prix. And, uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's the line, though. That, that's that's the, uh, the dividing line, which is before that, the only film that had ever really done it uh, to the, to the nth degree was Grand Prix, um, a little bit in some of the other films, but then after Days of Thunder, that's just, that's what you expect. So lucky you, you didn't have, I to, know, live through, I know. You didn't have to live through all those awful movies that I did growing up, growing up in the golden age of, of race filming. Yeah. I feel old by the way. I don't know if you were that young. So that's, uh, but we'll have that conversation later. I'm, I feel like I'm older in dad years. I think once you have a kid, it ages you. So yeah. I like to think I'm older in, uh, in that regard. That's a fact. But uh, another the the racing everything it just makes it enjoyable. This is an easy watch, but it also this movie gets right to it. Yeah. It's not trying to win Best Picture. It doesn't need to set up a big backstory. Right. It just keeps it nice and simple. Young hotshot trying to get along with his older boss slash mentor. You get the plot, the characters, the come to Jesus meeting between Cole and Harry. That's all in like twenty five minutes. Yeah. No. So, it, and it, you're and you're set up. And the cast is crazy. I mean, you know, we talked earlier about um. You know, Robert Duvall wisely passing on uh, on Godfather Three to make this film, but you look at the rest of the cast and it's just um, you know, we we had, of course we had no idea what Nicole Kidman was going to become after that, and we had no idea that uh, uh it, it, I just it, it, you even look at some of the bit players in there and it's um you know it's pretty amazing, and then of course you have you know maybe the greatest casting crossover in the history of auto racing films, which is uh. You know, if you look really closely, there's Cal Naughton Jr. Uh, yeah, working on the race John cars. John C. Riley. And it's funny. So really John C. might Riley, be on the Mount Rushmore of NASCAR movies. Yeah, well, and it's funny. So I did a story. This is the 10th anniversary of Talladega Nights. I wrote a story for ESPN.com a few years ago. And I got John C. Riley on the phone. And I asked him about the comparison of working on the two films. And he told me a hilarious story. He said what was funny was he said that you know the scene that that, that 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 so many people love, but NASCAR people cringe, is when Harry Hogg, the crew chief Robert Duvall, is in the barn talking to the race car. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, uh, you know, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna shave the oil pan down. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna give you a quarter inch here and a quarter inch there. And I'm gonna, you know, and he's explaining what he's gonna do to the car. I, I think it's a pretty good scene because it ex- it's explaining to non NASCAR people some of the things that a crew chief actually does. Although they don't build them in barns anymore, but John C. Riley, yeah, that scene clues someone like me in. Right, right. I think but, it's effective. Yeah, I, me too. But but the but the people who wanted this to be like a NASCAR documentary, you know, the NASCAR the people that work in the industry, they 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 took offense to that scene as they did to a lot of stuff. But John C. Riley told me that he went to Adam McKay and and Will Ferrell, and he wanted to do a scene that kind of poked fun at that Robert Duvall scene. And it's Cal Naughton Jr. like alone with his car in the race shop, and apparently they shot it, but they that thing the the, the footage does not exist anywhere. But from what John C. Riley told me, 
it starts with him, as will happen on these sets of these Adam McKay films, it started with him, you know, almost word for word copying what Robert Duvall did, talking to the car. And then by the time it was over with, John C. Riley was basically having intimate relations with the car. And at some I need point, that they decided scene. That, I need to find that on yeah, YouTube. Or got, some it has to be somewhere. on a Warner Brothers, you know, it has to be on a lot somewhere. It's funny you mentioned that scene though with with Robert Duvall trying to explain and get get the non NASCAR people kind of up to date on what's going on um, to take a a plug from uh, one of my favorite podcasts, the Rewatchables, which is similar podcast to this podcast. They recently did Unstoppable, which was Tony Scott's last film, and they talk about how Tony Scott, uh, you know, gets you up to speed on train lingo and, right. and what's going on. And they do he does the same thing. He's very conscious of there are people who will not be NASCAR fans who I need to like this movie and I need to keep you up to speed on this, on what's going on. And it doesn't leave you completely in the dark. So I can get where NASCAR lifers and NASCAR diehards might be like, hey, we don't need to know this stuff. But for someone like me, I think it's part of what makes this movie work. Yeah, it well, doesn't leave you in the dark. Sure. And you watch Top Gun, they do the exact same thing. And it makes you feel like, okay, now I get this. You watch, uh, um, uh, what was, what was the, uh, the submarine movie Tony Scott made with uh, um, Gene Hackman? And it's the same thing. They're explaining to you how submarines work. I mean, Crimson just, Tide, right? Yeah, Crimson Tide, that's it. I, I just, I'm not allowed, as a Tennessee alum, I can't say those words out loud. Oh, but it was, fair but enough, it, fair yeah, enough. But, but no, but it was a, um, uh, yeah, so, it, well, the f- most famous slash infamous scene in Days of Thunder is, you know, uh, Tom Cruise, uh, Cole Trickle, explaining how drafting works using sweet and low packets, you know, on his future wife's leg in bed. You're not going to do anything weird on my leg, are you, Cole? No. It's just something Harry and I work on together. It's called drafting. One car tucks in behind another. Two cars can go faster than one. They divide the air resistance between them. Now here's where it gets interesting. The lead car has to floor it to hit 200 miles an hour. But the car that's tucked in behind doesn't. It can go just as fast and still have power in reserve. So when these two cars come off that last turn, the car that's in back can move out of the draft and slingshot past the lead car, beat it to the finish line. And, but the reality is, wh- when I am trying to explain how they race at Daytona and Talladega, uh, where the draft comes into play to an ESPN colleague uh, who's never covered motorsports, say it's a hockey ride or whatever, you know what they immediately say? Oh, I know this. And how do they know it? They know it from the sweet and low packets on Nicole Kimmins' leg. And so, no, I, I think it's well, – when there's another great scene in the film where uh, when Harry Hogg takes Cole Trickle to a short track – and he's trying to teach him how to save his tires, how to not just completely burn the tires off the car. He's being too hard on the equipment, Cole Trickle is. And Cole Trickle has admitted, I don't know much about cars, which all the crew chiefs do love that scene because they all joke that drivers don't know anything about cars, and, and a lot of them don't, especially the young ones. But him, Harry Hogg, sitting there explaining in this old grandstand about why you save tires and what you need to do to do that, that's, that's 90% of a crew chief's job on the weekend. Even as sophisticated as NASCAR has become engineering-wise, at the end of the day, how long are you going to be on the track uh, and how much, how, much, how much tire wear will you have inflicted on those tires because the guy who has the most grip is the guy who's going to have a better chance at the end of the race. So, no, it's, it's, 
it's NASCAR 101, and and that's why I tell the hardcore NASCAR people all the time was that's how you have to approach this. You know, you're trying to educate people who don't care. This is the top the Top Gun crowd, uh, the interview with the Vampire crowd, and they're trying to learn about NASCAR. And so I think it's pretty pretty brilliant. Exactly, and that's why it works really well for someone like me. And you, you mentioned Colt Trickle, and we we've talked about it a little bit, but you can't mention this what worked in this movie without just saying young Tom Cruise had incredible charisma. Oh yeah. This is kind of like the last of the young kind of reckless little bit of wild card cruise characters. There's like risky, risky business, top gun color of money and cocktail. It's kind of like that. Yeah. He's got a little bit of edge to him. He's wild. He might fly off the handle, but he's just got crazy charisma and he's likable. I mean, he's, he's just damn good in this movie. It might not work as well with someone else, but he's, no, he's Tom Cruise. And, and this is my Tom Cruise. You know, I'm, I'm a kid of the eighties. And so, you know, th- this is the Tom Cruise that, that I knew growing up. And I think that's, that's, you know, b- before he became Ethan Hunt, which is, you know, my teenage daughter, that's who Tom Cruise is, right? He's Ethan Hunt. And to me, Tom Cruise is always going to be, you know, that's why I can't, that's why I get misty eyed when I see the Maverick trailer. Right, because that's my Tom Cruise, and uh, and so it's um it's really and and there were so many, you know, Robert Town wrote this film. I mean, this is Chinatown, you know, Robert Town, and there's so many great lines in the movie that I think get lost uh, on NASCAR on the on the on the jaded you know offended NASCAR fans. I mean, one of the greatest lines, one of my favorite lines in the history of film, is when uh, Nicole Kidman, Doctor Lewicki. Uh, is in there basically saying, you know, I don't want you to do this today. And he's going to go out and race Roddy Burns' car, you know, against his better judgment. And he says, I'm more afraid of being nothing than I am of getting hurt. I have that written down in my notes. Dude, it's, I it, love that line. I, I've talked with, I mean, I, I wrote a book with Dale Earnhardt Jr. last year. Um, and we talked about, you know, Dale Earnhardt Jr. walked away from his auto racing career with many years left because he had suffered multiple concussions over the years and he chose to go with his, with his health as opposed to risking putting himself, you know, uh, in a lifetime of, you know, of being incapacitated. That's what he's worried about. And he and I talked in the opening chapter of the book, we talk about the culture of motorsports and his father, of course, the intimidator, uh, Delano Hart senior racing with a broken collarbone and no doubt racing with at one point ro- race with a, uh, with a broken leg and certainly had concussions over the years. So all these guys did tape and aspirin to it. Right. And, uh, that, that we, when we talked about it, I looked right at Dell jr. And I said, you know, I'm more afraid of being nothing than I am of getting hurt. And he just started laughing. He goes, that's it. And that's why that's a great line. And you give credit to Tom Cruise and Robert town and everyone else for, for, you know, dropping into this, this culture and, and learning about it so quickly. And if you had to point to one line in the movie that is Cole Trickle's motivation, it is that. That's it. it that's the, it's his character summary right there in one line and why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah. And, and it's, and it is, it is what every race car driver, it's why they sell t-shirts with race car drivers faces on them. And they don't sell t-shirts with my face on them because they're just built differently. And this is why they're the ones in the cars and you and I are not. They're just, they don't think anything of it. And, uh, if they die, they die. And if they, uh, if you know, it's my, my all time favorite film is the right stuff. And you know, it's that great you know, explanation from the wife, which is when they go to work in the morning, you, you have to assume they might not come back. And it's that way with race car drivers. Certainly it was that way with race car drivers and stock cars, uh, in the late eighties, early nineties when the film was shot. 
It's fighter pilot mentality. It is. No, it totally is. And that's, you know, stop going on wheels. But it's, mm-hmm. uh, but, but I, you know, there, there's just, there's, there, there are, to me, there's a lot of great lines in the film, but that's the one. There's another line in this movie that I, I love. It's not NASCAR specific, but it's anyone who grew up in the South can identify it with is when Rowdy says, nobody in my family goes to the doctor unless they're dying. Yeah. Which was very, very yeah. much identifiable. I thought I found that very authentic. Well, and I tell you a truth, uh, maybe the biggest truth spoken in the film is when, uh, when Harry Hogg, when, when the crew chief is explaining to, to the doctor, you know, if you get a race car driver to a funeral, you know, then you've really done something. And that's a fact. I mean, you know, and I think about when, you know, several years after this film came out in the, in the mid to late nineties, we had a terrible run in a, a, across all of motorsports where all of these drivers were, were being killed and uh, fans were, spectators were dying. And, uh, and then of course all that culminated in the death of Del Earnhardt senior, you know, February 18th, 2001 and uh, knock on wood, you know, a cup series driver, uh, has not died in NASCAR since because all the safety innovations after that. But I can remember, I mean, you're talking about, uh, all of these young race car drivers, including Richard Petty's grandson. And, you know, I had to cover the funerals as a member of the media. And I was always struck by who was there, but I was also struck by who wasn't there. And then I was really struck by the fact that no one was offended if a race car driver didn't show up to their funeral, because chances are, um, they wouldn't have shown up at, at the funeral. Talking to Dale Earnhardt Jr., he, he, and again, we wrote it in the book, he talks about how when he was struggling medically, he didn't hear from a lot of guys because there's a, uh, you know, there's a mortality attached to that. And, uh, and that's why that, that line has always rung true to me, you know, from Robert Duvall. But, you know, uh, you, you get a race car driver to a funeral, you've really done something. Well, and they got that right, too, of Cole not wanting to go see Rowdy. Yeah, because he doesn't—he doesn't want to stare that in the face. Yeah. So that's a, get that's sick to his thing. stomach. You know, mm-hmm. the first time he realizes that when he's at the house and he's trying to convince Rowdy to go to the doctor, and you realize how much is taken out of him to even have that conversation, and uh, and he goes and gets sick. I mean, he goes and throws up because the reality of it is uh, th- those guys don't fa- facing reality and you know p- practical things that the rest of us face like like death. And the rest of us, you know, try to avoid those guys don't really have to do that much men and women. And so, uh, so yeah, I thought, I thought that was, uh, I thought that was, it was smart. You talk about kind of driving style in that time period and how things have changed in a lot of regards. Um, one thing that I, I just, I have to ask you if you can shed a light on the team racing dynamic in the eighties, because Cole and, and Russ are on the same team or ri- right. riding for the same owner. Um, I think if I, if I'm saying, if I, thinking correctly that things have changed as far as the team racing dynamic in present day as opposed to then no it was it was a super super brand new and vicious idea um there were not a lot of multi-car teams now hendrick motorsports the team that you know that was primarily responsible for for making you know, the, the story and providing the cars and that's rick hendrick and uh jeff gordon who came along later and all that but they were a kind of a pioneer of that where junior johnson who just recently passed away? Film, there was a film uh, about Junior Johnson years ago, starring Jeff Bridges. But but Junior Johnson was the first to kind of pioneer this. Certainly the first in a few decades. And his drivers were Neil Bonnet and Daryl Waltrip. And those two teams not only did they not get along, uh, they didn't work out of the same shop. One one worked at a shop about a mile away from the other one, and Junior Johnson would pit them against one another because he was trying to create. You know, it's like a quarterback competition. He's trying to create tension 
and if one beats the other one, it's going to make them work harder. And so it was a, it was a brand new thing. And, and right after the film came out, it was in the, the mid nineties is when teams that swore they would never run more than one car started doing it. And that included Dale Earnhardt's team. And Dale Earnhardt was so resistant to having a teammate because you know, race car driver, their feeling was like they say in the film, well, if, if you own two cars and you're the car owner, or the guys are building cars for two different drivers, you know, who's to say that they're going to do something for the guy they like versus me. And so it's, uh, you know, it's who th- th- there's a line I'm paraphrasing. There's a line I'm paraphrasing. There's a line from Robert Duvall in the film where he says to the car owner, he's like, you know, he, he basically says, you know, we, we come to Sunday, they're running up front and I'm not, you know, who are you going to side with? And so it's a, uh, it was a very, very real, uh, controversy that had, we touched on just a little bit in the NASCAR world by 1990, but just a few years later was the single biggest story in the sport. So the movie kind of captured that effectively. One hundred percent was ground yeah. floor on yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, you. Yeah. How? How in the world can we take what we're doing now and spread it over two cars? Uh, when when you know we're trying to win with one car, you know it's uh, and it, that was the old school mentality. Now you know Hendrick Motorsports has four cars and other teams have three cars and. Um, and every single team has at least two cars. There's only a handful of teams left that just run one. And that's considered a huge disadvantage. I think that's another thing that speaks to how much this movie maybe not tried to be the most authentic movie in the world, but just tried to touch on as many things about the sport as it could. Yeah. They crammed a lot in there to its credit. Yeah. Film's not that long. And no, um, it's not. (laughs) And they crammed a lot in there. And, uh, yeah, all the stuff we're talking about, the educated, the people that don't know anything about it on the sport. Uh, they introduced a bunch of characters none of us had ever heard of before. Um, and then, uh, you know, y- you throw in injury and you throw in uh, controversy within the team and you throw in, you know, even the little stuff like, you know, his dad run off with the money and it just was, uh, it was a lot. Oh, and by the way, romance. Yes. Yeah. It, it had a little bit of everything. Did you have anything about this movie that didn't work that you had down for didn't work anything we, we haven't already covered? No, I mean, just the little stuff. I mean, there was there's nothing. There was nothing major. I mean, what I tell people all the time, and I, I said this when we first started talking about it, it, it's a it's a very divisive film amongst uh, NASCAR fans, but really people within the NASCAR industry. And what I'm telling tell them all the time is is that you know there's plenty of documentaries out there if you want to watch a documentary. But if you thought this was going to be a documentary, uh, and you saw Tom Cruise coming out of his trailer. And you saw uh, uh, <laughs> Nicole Kidman walking down pit road at Daytona in her white linen pantsuit. You probably should have realized then that it was not going to be a documentary. Yeah, my only real what didn't work or any complaints about it. It does. It hits the brakes. No pun intended. After the crash, there's about 30 minutes where it really slows down, and you yeah. maybe could have trimmed some fat off that. No, I agree with that. But that's that. I, I say that about a lot of films, and uh, but I, I, yeah, I, I agree with that. It, they probably could have. They probably could have. Uh, there is a point in the film. You're right, where it's like, man, I haven't seen a race car in a long time, and yeah. uh, and, and and sometimes in those films, when they kind of wander off in the middle, um, you know, when I was a teenager, I thought the same thing about Top about Top Gun. I'm like, hey, man, where where are the fighter? Why are the jets? And uh, but yeah, no, I, I would I would I would agree with that. I also laughed out loud at the line uh, where the the PA announcer of the Daytona 500 says, we welcome you to the Daytona 500, the Super Bowl of racing events, like hitting the non-NASCAR fan on the head with this. Like, hey, this is important, folks. 
Yeah, well, and, that, and, and for a while, uh, the Daytona 500 tried to have that phrase, the Super Bowl stock car racing. They tried to have that, like, trademarked. And, of course, the NFL wouldn't have anything to do with that. But one, one thing that is cool in that film is, like, the voices that you hear, those aren't made up people. Like, you know, you hear the voices of Bob Jenkins, and you hear the voice of Ken Squire, and you hear the voice of Jerry Punch. I mean, the voices that you hear, those are legit. Those are the people that were authentic to the time who would have been in those jobs as pit reporters and as play-by-play commentators and all that. That that wasn't made up at all. And that's that me, that's, does so much for a sports movie. Yeah, and, and this and this that's the. I it still gives me chills to watch the first five minutes of that film, that that opening you know montage because it is like a time capsule, and you know. There's that that boxy looking Chevy Lumina, which was a brand new car, by the way. That that was a huge coup for for Chevrolet. That that Chevy Lumina was uh, was really the superstar of the film. But but even just looking at, you know, there's Harry Gant and there's Rusty Wallace, um, and, and you know, seeing the cars out on the racetrack, you know, that were shot that day in 1989. It, it was a um, that was a that was a particularly special time in the history of the sport. Richard Petty. And there they all are in the film, and I thought that was uh, I thought that was pretty great. Well, like next week, uh, we're doing um, doing another Tom Cruise sports movie, doing Jerry Maguire, and at the, yeah. the Monday Night Football scene, they actually have like Frank Gifford and you know I think Al Michaels and stuff, and it's just it's the same kind of thing. It, it brings you back to that that point. It's very nostalgic. Yeah, I told uh, I told you, know, you the uh, well, I told you that that my, my friend Jerry Punch he still receives the occasional. Uh, royalty check although it's only for a few bucks each year from days of thunder same thing for mike tarico who makes a my friend mike tarico that i worked for with for years the espn and mel copper jr they make cameos uh in in jerry Maguire, and they receive little paychecks but it can be anything. it's the authenticity of it now and there's things in jerry Maguire that rub a lot of agents the wrong way but a lot of it is uh is pretty good too now I t- I, i'll give you a cameo that you may or may not know about and and honestly i didn't know about it until my, my colleague chris Connolly. Uh, of course, Rolling Stone and, and covers the Oscars, and he's a, a colleague of mine at E60, and he covered the production of this film, and he loves to tell me stories, but something I did not realize as many times as I'd watched it is this this Aldo Benedetti, uh, this Italian race car driver who's just kind of thrown in. The, all they do, they're announcing, is near the top of the film, they're announcing like, and here's Rowdy Burns, you know, defending Winston Cup champion, and you know, here's so-and-so and here's Richard Petty, whatever. And they go, and there's Alto Benedetti. And I remember when I saw the film, I thought, oh, they're introducing, this is awesome. This is going to be like Mario Andretti. They're introducing some character here. And then he never says a word. And there's another like quick shot of him somewhere in the film, but that's Don Simpson. Uh, of course it was what Simpson Bruckheimer, you know, Jerry mm-hmm, Bruckheimer, the, the producer. Partner. Yeah. And Don Simpson, you know, was one of the all time legendary, uh, Hollywood partiers and John C. Riley told me he said he learned a couple lessons. This was his first blockbuster film, and he said one of the things he learned was he says that you can't live life like Don Simpson because you're not going to last very long. Because <laughs> he Don Simpson was old school '80s Hollywood man, but yeah, he just he he loved race cars, so he put himself in the film. But I just remember watching the film and thinking, oh, what, what are they going to do with this guy? Well, and there's the was, uh, the there was, was some nothing. IMDb trivia. That I that I left out, I mentioned I left out about the whole Bruckheimer and Don Don Simpson and everything going on behind the scenes. 
I was looking hard before we recorded this, and there's not a good oral history to Days of Thunder. So if you're if you need something to fill your time this year at ESPN, I would love to see you take a uh, take a whack at that. Well, I did you know I did one for Talladega Nights um, just a couple years ago, and uh, and it did very well traffic wise. And so uh, I'm looking at the calendar here. Well, we're in, we're in 2020, right? We're coming we up on are. the 30th anniversary. 30. And uh, you June know what? 27th, you 1990, release date for what, Days what of Thunder. What was the month? Would you say June 27th? Okay. Well, there you go. You've just handed me my summer project. As if I didn't have enough to do, you've just handed me a project that I'm absolutely 100% going to do. I think you're obligated to do it. No, I am. And uh, when uh, I'll be I'll be popping up on the Top Gun Maverick uh, press junket tour now and. Everybody's gonna be asking questions about uh, about Top Gun, and I'm gonna be asking questions about Days of Thunder. You have to, you have to. Let's move to the uh, the Kevin Costner, Freddie Pinch Jr. Awards for Best and Worst On Screen Athlete. I mean, you tell me. I don't know if you can you can say you know you, most of the most of the driving is just a guy behind a wheel. You can't really tell who's doing what. Well, and it's interesting now because you couldn't make this film now because back then drivers ran open face helmets so in other words you know it's like a motorcycle helmet like your face is exposed in the front and so that's a lot you think about how much of the film was you know hey remember me and you know all that you're looking at their faces and now everybody runs a closed face helmet you know in Talladega Nights Ricky Bobby runs a closed face helmet and he runs the uh, on purpose most of the time he doesn't have the windscreen or the or the face screens missing but uh, but now these days, I mean, no, in fact, it's illegal. You can't run a full, uh, for safety reasons. You have to run a closed face helmet. And so, you think about all the interaction uh, between uh, between Cole and his rivals when we're looking at their faces, and uh, that wouldn't exist now. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, so our, so performance wise, I mean, I, you know, Robert Duvall looked, talked, acted like a crew chief. Um, he even ran like a crew chief at the end of the film. Um, and, and I will give the drivers credit because a lot of what they did was good. What, what, what you hate in a racing film is, is when they're just sawing the wheel. You know, I hate it when, when they, sh- when somebody's just driving down the street in the film and they're just sawing the wheel. Um, you know, these guys were, were legitimately, they had the hand movements down. The only problem I had with those guys is like I was talking about earlier and they didn't do this. This was shot by the second unit, but all the upshifting and downshifting that's going on in an oval race. And that just doesn't happen. It's, it hasn't happened in decades it still but, has to keep crews up at night that he didn't get to do all the stunt driving for this movie yeah well that's, has, that's what he to wanted to him. it yeah. has to eat at him you mentioned robert duvall let's get to the lenny harris pinch hitter award for best supporting character this is a loaded category you've got michael rooker as rowdy burns uh robert duvall as harry uh he's forever tom hagan and lieutenant colonel kilgore but he's great in this movie uh randy quaid is tim dallin he's modeled after rick hendrick randy quaid just makes me sad now yeah, uh, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Three, Every three sports movies for Quaid. Yeah. Uh, the Angry Fan in Major League Two and then Kingpin, which I love Kingpin. Yeah. Uh, John C. Ryland as Buck Bretherton. Buck Bretherton. Yeah. Bretherton. Bretherton. Yep. Uh, they weirdly don't give him a ton to do. You think there's going to be like a deep conversation about his dad passing, but it's more right. like, oh, hey, my dad's the guy who's haunting Harry, but you're not going to hear about him from me. Right. But, um, he, but he tells the story because because Harry can't. Mm-hmm. Harry can't deal with it. Yeah, and, yeah. And the, well, and 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 Fred Thompson, you know, future what senator, governor, whatever he was, Fred Thompson, you know, he played Big John. Mm-hmm. He and did. Big John was the you know 
the the president, the commissioner of NASCAR. Well, that that was based on uh, Bill France Jr. and Bill France Sr. His father founded NASCAR in the 1940s, and then uh, a Bill France Jr. who oversaw NASCAR, and his whole thing was intimidation. And that whole speech he gives those guys about the Japanese inspection and the lettuce, that was a real speech that Bill France Jr. used to give guys if they were acting like jerks. If you want to turn yourselves into a greasy spot on a country road somewhere, go right ahead. I don't give a shit, and I don't think anybody else does, regardless what they say to your face. But you two monkeys are not going to do it on my racetrack. Now, y'all heard of Japanese inspection? Japanese inspection. You see, when the Japs get in a load of lettuce that they're not sure they want to let in the country, why, they just let it sit on the docks until they get good and ready to look at it. But then, of course, it's all gone rotten. Ain't nothing left to inspect. In other words, lettuce is a perishable item. Like you two monkeys. You trade paint one more time, you so much as touch. I'm going to black flag the two of you. Going to take apart your race car for 300 laps. Then, if you pass inspection and you put your car back together, I might let you get back in the race. Now, just to show us there's no hard feelings, we all gonna go out to dinner together. And uh, and and that whole uh, dictatorial way of running the sport, which a lot of fans, a lot of competitors say the NASCAR could use a little more of these days, as opposed to it being run by committee, kind of how it is. But but Big John was based on Bill France Jr. because everybody called him Bill Jr. And, uh, and that was always the one that jumped out to me as far as the supporting cast because, you know, having interacted with Bill France Jr. and seen him do what he did, you know, just a few years later when I was out on the road covering NASCAR, you know, what, six years after the film came out, um, my, my favorite was always Rowdy Burns because he was based on Dale Earnhardt. But then years later, after I was around Bill France Jr., I was like, oh, man, uh, Fred Thompson. Just basically just being Fred Thompson. That's the same role he plays in everything, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Hunt for Red October, whatever he was in, that's the role he played. But he was he nailed it, and I think it's just because they basically they're kind of the same person anyway. Yeah, he's really only got two two scenes, but he's powerful in both of them. Yeah, yeah, the dinner um, with the breadsticks, and then uh, you know, and you you two gonna you two gonna join me for dinner later, and uh, and then obviously when he gives him the speech. Uh, it's uh no, it's good stuff. Yeah, he's at the he's at the medical thing, which I'm not sure they would reveal sensitive medical data in front of two different people. But, yeah, right. <laughs> but 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 I tell you this: so uh, Bill Jr. would have done it. Like that's the point is that is that things that you're not even so he was above the law on everything, and so uh, he absolutely would have for the sake of uh, his dictatorship, he would have 100 percent avoided any and all laws uh, when it came to privacy to uh, to make his point. Well, I will, I will go ahead and agree with your pick there. I can't argue with it. I just want to give a, a shout out to, to Carrie Ellis, oh. who, as Russ Wheeler, he plays a great smarmy dick. I'm really so, I'm so angry at myself. So I, I took my daughter to the TCM Classic Film Festival two years ago, uh, which if you've never been, you have to go. It's phenomenal. And you just basically watch old movies, you know, at the Chinese theater. And then they bring out panels and they talk about, hey, when they worked up Mel Brooks and everyone else, they just walk out and talk. Well, they show Princess Bride, and um, they're counting that as an old classic movie. Well, at the time, and it was a little controversial, honestly, with the people. But the re- but the problem too is you can't you can't do panels just on movies that were shot in the twenties because they're all gone, right? And fair, so fair. They it was it was an anniversary is what it was, what we call anniversary journalism. Uh, but they it was the anniversary of 
uh, and Rob Reiner was coming. He was available, so he showed up. And so Kerry uh, Ewells was there that day, like sitting in the audience. He was sitting about probably five rows behind me, and I was too big of a wuss to go talk to him. And he just sat there and watched the movie and then left. And I'm, I'm still kicking myself to this day. I should have just walked up to him and said, hey, man, uh, I know we're here for this, uh, for this chick flick, but I really want to talk to you about playing uh the perfect way you just for you just described the character i want to talk to you about playing uh about playing the uh russ wheeler because he's a he's a jerk he really is really is but uh we'll, we'll we'll go with your pick for lenny harris the big chill moment uh which is you know the moment in every sports movie hair stands up on the back of your neck it's roy hobbs knocking out the lights in the natural this one i i have two nominees i i Cole getting out in front of the pace car by both crews pushing him yep. just barely. And then I guess when he wins the Daytona 500, it's more like a big chill for Harry. You kind of love it for Harry. Yeah. Uh, did did you have anything that like that gets you, you know, in that way in this movie? Well, I love the scene where, they hit, where he hits the pace car. Because, uh, first of all, I was based on a true story. I think I said that earlier. But I love that scene because it just was, it was awesome. And uh, when he goes out and hits... He goes out and hits Russ Wheeler. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, sorry, he's just, you know, crew chief at one point says, I want you to hit the pace car. But then when he goes out there and just jacks up Russ Wheeler, that's, uh, that, that was the scene that I love the most. But just, but the, the, the spine tingling moment for me, again, I go back to the very beginning of the film because it just was, it, you know, this February, here in just a couple of weeks, uh, I will cover what I believe is going to be my 25th Daytona 500. And uh, the reason I keep going back, even though ESPN doesn't televise races anymore, is because it's just part of my body clock. I have to go. And the reason I have to go is because of what, what is encapsulated in that film in that moment, which is the the, 15, the first the, the half hour that leads into the green flag at the Daytona 500 and the first five laps of that race, that is the happiest place on earth. And it's just, it's the coolest. And, and it, that should be on every sports fan's bucket list. And so for me, uh, the way that film started, and uh, and you kidding me, man? You throwing some Hans Zimmer and some David Coverdale in there? That's, uh, how are you going to beat that? It's a beautiful scene. It's a beautiful scene. I think you have to be a NASCAR in your position to to have that strike you in that way. Um, like there are baseball movies that do that for me, just scenes of overlooking a baseball stadium or something. That'll oh yeah. Hey, that the great, me. the greatest scene in major league, the greatest scene in major league. My brother and I talk about this all the time is, uh, when you hear Harry Doyle's voice and they have an aerial shot showing the old nasty Cleveland stadium, like from a helicopter before that final up. game when it's packed. It's the greatest. Yeah. That's my favorite shot in the whole film. So yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, what's the one that gives you the chill to me? you know odd enough is the first five minutes of the film yeah it makes sense um let's move going to with this make a good 30 for 30 they basically made it tim richmond to the limit right um you, you know check that out on espn plus as far as let, let's wrap up I'll, I'll get you out of here with with how to improve it and before we say that ryan you got to think if they remake this movie you've got a decent shot at a cameo i would hope so yeah no if they didn't put me in there i mean it's I feel like I've given them so much reverse publicity over the years because I continue to defend the film when other NASCAR people roll their eyes. Yeah. No, if they, if they, so my, I said earlier, the right stuff is my favorite movie of all time. My second favorite film is the cannonball run. And there's already rumors that they're going to remake cannonball run. And I'm already shamelessly lobbying everyone I know in LA, which is like four people. But, uh, but yeah, so if they remake days of thunder, um, 
cruise if you're downloading and listening to this right now and i assume that you are uh i can be reached in charlotte yeah i, I assume i always assume tom cruise is listening no matter you know to, to every episode um as far as how to improve it i didn't i didn't really have anything except and this wouldn't be an improve this would more be a remake but it, it just had me you know that um right after cole's first win and tim grabs him and harry and just says hey guys promise me you, you know we'll win daytona just promise oh. me that <laughs> Promise me one thing, boys. Whatever else we do from here, we win Daytona. That's a promise. That's a promise. This movie could have jumped like 10 years right there. Yeah. And it, it like goes from there and then it's like 10 years and Cole and Harry are still <laughs> still struggling. They're, yeah. they're they're still going at it. They still haven't won Daytona. It could have been a different movie. Yeah. So I'm saying maybe if they do a remake, they could go that way if they don't want to do shot for shot. But as far as improvement, I didn't really did you have anything that that would stick out or really improve this one? No, I mean I, I honestly I thought that um I like the fact that Cole Trickle struggles in the beginning, and I understand why that doesn't last very long. But just for the sake of feeling real, he would have struggled struggled longer than that. I'm liking what you're saying, though. I like that idea a lot. because, And honestly, if they'd have had to wait 10 years, it would have been super accurate. I mean, you know, everyone says the greatest Daytona 500 of all time was when Dale Earnhardt won the race in 1998. And the reason is because it had taken him almost 20 years to win that race. And when Daryl Walter finally won it a few years earlier than that, same thing. It was because he hadn't won it forever. When Buddy Baker won it in the early eighties, same thing. It was everybody, everybody's favorite moments at Daytona that weren't just incredible door to door finishes, which has only been a handful. Their favorite moments are when the guy who struggled his entire career and didn't win that race, um, you know, finally won the race, you know, Tony Stewart never won the Daytona 500. Rusty Wallace never won the Daytona 500. Mark Martin never won. The, they're all in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. And if if you got them on the phone right now, that's the one thing that would make them go, "Damn it," because they never did it. And so, uh, yeah, that, that would that actually I like I like that a lot. There's something about watching someone get the monkey off their back that yeah. is. And, and Cole doesn't really have a monkey on his back. It's his first Daytona 500. Right. But Harry um, does, right? And then yeah. you, you, you said it a few minutes ago. You said, you know, we, we get to see, you know, Harry's redemption um, or, you know, or Harry finally overcomes his, his ghost. Or whatever, and, that's, and that's it. We were, we were still given someone that had to overcome something. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, when, when this is remade, uh, I, I hope you get that cameo. I me hope too. later this year to see you do an oral history of Days of Thunder. Ryan McGee, you have given me so much of your time. I'm very appreciative. Tell the folks again where they can find you and find your work. Well, uh, on ESPN.com all the time, whether it's on the NASCAR page or, or college football and a little bit of college basketball and college World Series and all that stuff, but but mainly college football and NASCAR. And then Marty Smith and I, uh, your boy, we uh, Saturday mornings on ESPN Radio and the SEC Network, 7 to 9 a.m., uh, grab a cup of coffee, and uh, we may or may not talk about sports. Well, you have to give Marty a uh, go Hokies for me. Um, if you've enjoyed Big Screen Sports, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe, rate, review. You all know the drill. Next week, we are starting Oscars month, like I said earlier, with a another Tom Cruise sports movie, uh, Jerry Maguire with Julie DeCaro, and we'll catch you then. Thanks. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. 
That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.